You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise the majesty and glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We join all of creation, all the earth, in singing your praise. We thank you that you've revealed your kindness and mercy and love and grace to us in the person of Jesus and that all of Scripture bears witness to him. We pray now as we turn to your word that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would be those who respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning again, dear friends. It's great to see you, church family. I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Third. Um, I, I did want to tell you, I, I wrote this in my weekly email this week, but this is actually the last time that I'm going to preach for a while until August. Um, session has been super kind in, I think, recognizing that, um, yeah, the last two years have been really exhausting, and it, it's good to give, get some rest. Um, and I also have a number of things that I'm excited about working on. I'm working on a chapter in a book that I've asked to contribute to, and I'm teaching a seminary class. Um, in our seminary coming up, and then I, I have a lot of prep to do for that. And so I, just, I also just need some time um, just to think and reflect and pray and be with my family. Um, and so taking most of the month of July off, I'll be here a couple more Sundays, but won't be preaching until August, taking most of the months of July off, and we'll be back here in the pulpit um, in the second Sunday of August. So just wanted you to know that. That's why you won't see me for a bit. Um, but I love you, and I miss you, and I will miss you, but not too much. <laughs> Um, but definitely we'll miss you a good bit. So um, excited for that time. Um, we, um, as you know, have been in a sermon series we're calling um, our Resurrection Hope, and today's our last sermon in that series. And so we're going to be hearing a reading from Liz Foreman from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. So if you'll turn your, in your Bibles, let's hear God's word. A reading from the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks for God. This whole sermon series has been built on one simple yet revolutionary idea. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. 
The resurrection changes everything. Jesus' resurrection, Christians believe, is not a religious idea. It's not a, a fairy tale. It's not a metaphor. It is a fact of history that around 2,000 years ago, a man was crucified as a religious heretic and a political revolutionary. Uh, he was fully dead and put into a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead with a transformed body. And if this is true, and many of us here in this room believe that it is, if this is true, it means that all of reality is changed. It means, as Leslie began put it, you, di- you don't try to fit the resurrection Jesus into your worldview. It means you need an entirely new worldview in which the resurrection is the starting point. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And so what this eight-week sermon series has been is an attempt to do that, to rethink everything. And I've tried to actually cover everything in the light of the resurrection. We started um, with a narrow lens. So eight weeks ago, we started talking about how the resurrection of Jesus changes our personal lives. It brings conversion. Uh, It is the power for personal change. Uh, It gives us resources to face our suffering. And then we talked about how the resurrection is hope for our physical bodies and reaffirms our bodily life in the world. We widen the lens a bit to talk about how the resurrection of Jesus changes our interpersonal relationships and changes even the way that we relate in our social and cultural uh, relational communities. And then we widen the lens even further to talk about how the resurrection changes what we do in the world, how we impact the world with our work and labor. And today, we're widening the lens as widely as possible to talk about the hope that the resurrection has for the world itself, for everything. And so we are trying to cover everything from the smallest part of your life to the grandest hope for the destiny of the earth. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I hope you believe that. So let's, let's do this today. Um, as we've done a little bit every week, we're going to look at the story of creation and the resurrection's role in it, and then we'll talk about a couple of applications for this story at the end. So first, let's tell this story. I'm calling this uh, yearning for a new world from creation to new creation. Let's just talk quickly about the story of Scripture for a moment. One of the first things that the Bible teaches is the goodness of creation, the goodness of the earth. Um, God makes everything, and he declares it. As you kids reminded me last week, he creates it, and he calls it what? Good, right? Tov is the Hebrew word. He creates it good. So everything, mountains and trees and fishes and seas, you know, everything he pronounces good. And, I, and it's important to remember, too, that all of this creational goodness is good even before humans are on the scene. So creation is good not just because it is good for us, but just simply because it is, because God made it and it brings him glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That wonderful psalm that you all just sang, Psalm 8, says that all things declare the majesty and glory of his name, like a piece of art that reflects the glory of an artist. A tree declares God's glory just by being a tree, a mountain just by being a mountain, a a possum or an oyster just by being a possum and an oyster. In some ways, an oyster is even better at doing its job than we are at ours. 
because it is bringing glory. It is doing what it made to do and being the fullness of the oyster that God made it to be. Creation doesn't need humans to bring God, God glory. We also know from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created humanity to be stewards of God's creation. Like we looked at last week, God made us caretakers, gardeners, curators of the living gallery of creation. And what do stewards and caretakers do? Not exploit or destroy or ruin. They care, they cultivate, they protect. Uh, Imagine if someone left you in charge of their gorgeous custom-built home that they carefully designed and made. They put great care into it. They spared no expense, and then they entrusted it to you. It's not yours to do with what you want. It's been entrusted to you to care and to cultivate and to protect. This is what God did in entrusting creation to man and woman. He said we are most fully human when we have a healthy relationship with creation, ensuring the health of the world and our relationship to it under the reign of God. So, you know, I've used a little chart with you the last few weeks, but today I'm going to use some little, some pictures, some images. So this is in some ways the image of that first, that first chapter of the story, as we see God creates a world in which he is reigning as the king. Heaven and earth are one. God walks with human beings on the earth in the garden, and humans are called to steward and care for the world under the reign of God, under his good and generous kingship, okay? So that's chapter one. But chapter two, we know what happens when humans rebel against God. God no longer walks with Adam and Eve in garden. The earth and heaven are pulled apart. Heaven, which is the place of God's dwelling, is separated from earth, the place of human dwelling. And not only that, we see creation itself breaks because of the fall. Our disobedience wreaks havoc on the world. Human beings reject the stewardship of God's world. And instead of acting as image bearers, taking care of the property of another, we begin to believe that this world actually belongs to us. We start ripping up the carpet and knocking holes in the wall and tearing out the fixtures and putting in really ugly ones instead. You know, Dominion becomes domination. Ruling becomes abusing. As co-rulers with God, we were made to be ministers of blessing, and instead human beings become conduits of curses. So this is vital for us to understand, church family, that when we talk about sin, we almost always privatize it and individualize it, just about my mistakes and my sin. But we also see that, according to the Bible, sin has a cosmic scale, right? Romans 8, that we just heard read says that creation itself is in bondage to decay. They're not just spiritual and personal effects, but even environmental and ecological effects of sin. Sin has brought catastrophe of literal global proportions. Creation is a victim of human rebellion, bearing the curse, and God, Scripture says, is angry. Revelation 11.8, the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth, says God. It's a scary verse. So that's the fall. It's not a very happy chapter. But there is a third chapter, and that is redemption, that God does not give up on his creation. He refuses to allow evil to destroy the goodness and the beauty of his earth, and God promises even as early as Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent and to undo the evil that threatens his world. And as we've said almost every week, the story that the Bible teaches is not the story of God scrapping the earth and whisking people up to some disembodied heaven, 
But the story of the Bible is reclaiming, God reclaiming the earth and restoring his purposes for humanity in his world. Chris Wright, that great biblical scholar who taught at our missions conference this year, says this, the biblical hope from Genesis to Revelation is that God should do something with the earth so that once again, we can dwell on it in rest or Sabbath peace with him. We see this commitment to God's earth in all sorts of ways. Oh, and I have a, I have a new image for you here. This is what we see is, is heaven beginning to reclaim the earth. God beginning to infiltrate the broken earth with the kingdom of heaven. We see this in the covenant that God makes with the earth itself in Genesis 9 after the, Noah, after the, the flood in the time of Noah. We see God reaffirming the calling of stewardship in the Old Testament law through laws of Sabbath and harvest principles and treatment of animals and labor practices in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we see the Old Testament prophets in the Psalms speaking of the day that creation anticipates God's return. Psalm 96, let the fields be jubilant. Let all the trees of forest sing for joy for the Lord comes. He comes to set the world right, says, says Psalm 96. And the story of redemption, of course, culminates in the person of Jesus when the creator actually becomes part of his creation. In the incarnation, Jesus affirms creation by taking on a created human body and living out an ordinary life in the created world. In his death, Jesus takes upon himself the curse of humanity and creation, bearing in his own body the judgment and the curse of human rebellion. And in his resurrection, Jesus rises to defeat sin and death and the devil. And his resurrection is the foretaste, as we've been saying, the first fruit, the appetizer, not just of your restored and resurrected body, but also of a restored and resurrected creation itself. And this is what we see in the final chapter that Isaiah speaks about, that John speaks about in Revelation, that we're told throughout the Bible that all of creation will eventually be renewed. That at the end of all things, we do not see souls flying away to heaven. We see heaven coming and reclaiming, reuniting with earth once again, God re-inhabiting our world and healing all things. Heaven and earth, which are currently separated, will be rejoined and earth itself will be healed. This is what Paul is speaking about in Romans 8. He says creation itself is waiting for this, longing for this. We were in um, Memphis a few months ago, and we went to this hotel, this famous hotel in Memphis called the Peabody. Have any of y'all ever been to the Peabody Hotel in Memphis? They have these famous ducks that live in a duck spa on the roof. And every day at 11 a.m., the ducks take an elevator. This is for real kids. The ducks take an elevator down to the lobby, and at exactly 11 a.m., the elevator opens up, and the ducks file out. They walk down the red carpet, and they jump into the marble fountain. They've been doing this for 60 years, every day at 11 a.m. So at 11 a.m., you gather there in the lobby, and all these kids, we were there um, just a few months ago, and there were probably 100 kids gathered in the lobby, and they were all crowded around the red carpet, and they were all going like this. Waiting, waiting for the ducks to be revealed, you know. And finally, at 11 a.m., there was a little ding, and the elevator doors opened, and out filed the ducks, you know, waiting on tiptoes for the ducks to be revealed. This is the image that I have in my mind of Paul's scripture. Is that it's, he literally says this. Look at the text. It says, creation, 
is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation itself is waiting, longing for the day. The sons and daughters of God will be re-resurrected, renewed, restored in their new transformed bodies and reaffirm their calling as humans who are living on a healed world in union with God and neighbor. For the creation has been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. This is amazing. I mean, no other religion, no other worldview says this. Secular materialism says that the world eventually will just burn up, and so it's up to us to preserve it as long as possible. Most major world religions teach that the world is temporary and that we're just waiting to escape into some kind of soul paradise and leave the earth behind. Only the Bible teaches that the world is good and that the world is permanent. It is God is so absolutely committed to it that he's gonna heal it, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, not just to save our souls, but to restore creation itself. Y'all just think about this, that when God finally resurrects our bodies, it will be such an explosion of love and power and glory that all of creation will just be swept up right along with it. When you look at the beauty of nature, when you look at a, a mountain or the ocean or the sunset, just imagine it is just a shadow of what it will one day be. A shadow. There will be a beauty so indescribable that only our transformed eyes will be able to gaze upon it. That's what we're waiting for. So where does that leave us now, if this is true? Well, as we said every week, we are caught in the middle. We live in the in-between. So going back to the, the overlapping of the ages, you are here, right? You are right there between the already and the not yet. You, we still live in the old creation that is damaged by the curse, the world marked by sin and death, and yet we already participate in the new creation even now because Jesus has already risen from the dead and you are already connected to him by the Holy Spirit. His new creation work has already begun and you can participate in the new creation, the future. You can live in the future even now as you participate with Jesus through his spirit in the new creation life. So what implications does this have for our relationship with the world, with creation? I just wanna talk about a couple implications. First, I wanna talk about beauty. I wanna talk about beauty. There was a study in 2012 of five major global cities about what contributes to individual flourishing and happiness. It was a major study in, I think it was like New York, Hong Kong, Nairobi, couple other cities, major global cities, the main factor they found that contributed to individual happiness and flourishing, I wonder what you would say. What, is, what do you think is the main factor across all cultures? It wasn't wealth, wasn't career, wasn't health. It was beauty, beauty. That the human, proc, human proximity to beauty made for the greatest factors for human happiness and flourishing. Even in ugly, decimated places. I've actually walked through um, the, the horrible um, slums of Nairobi myself. Um, and even in those places where, where the poverty is just unimaginable, um, people will pin up colorful pictures that are torn from magazines or little bright pieces of cloth or hang plastic flowers um, in their, in their, in their um, piece together huts. 
Humans are hungry for more than just jobs or food. We ache for beauty. We ache for beauty. As the Irish poet John O'Donohue said, our encounters with beauty evoke within us a sense of coming home. There's something even an unbeliever knows that there is something that I long for, that I was made for beyond myself, beauty. Christians have a conflicted relationship with beauty. On the one hand, Christians have contributed to some of the most beautiful artistic movements in the world. At times, the church has been the leading patron of the arts, architecture, music, visual arts, iconography, some of the most celebrated artists in history that we go and see in museums in Europe um, have, have created with support from the church out of love for God and creation. On the other hand, resistance to art and beauty has also been a major problem throughout the history of the church, especially harmful in evangelical Protestantism. Um, in the Reformation, there was this movement called iconoclasm, where people, um, Reformed Christians, would come into churches and they would destroy paintings, sculptures, and murals. A lot of it was done in anger out of the excesses of the medieval Roman church, but much of it was also fueled by this um, dualistic neoplatonic heresy that we've talked about that sees the world as bad and the body as evil and the spiritual life and the soul as good, that the world and, and beauty is inferior to the more spiritual work of the soul. Apparently, this was an issue even in the beginning of the church. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, reject uh, those deceitful teachers who forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Y'all, because we know the creator, because we know where creation comes from, we should be the most joyful people and the people who are most able to enjoy the beauty and the pleasure of the earth, right? We worship the Lord Jesus, whose first miracle when he was on earth was to bring new life to a party by making some phenomenal wine, right? Nobody has resources like we do to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, like a sunset, music, food, sex, because we know the one who made and gave these things. One of the most simple ways we can bear witness to Jesus is by being people who enjoy creation and who point others to its source. But we're not just called to enjoy it, we're called to create beauty, create beauty. As resurrection people, we're already part of the new creation, the age in which Jesus is making everything new. God is in the business of renewing all things, and so with God's help, joined to the risen Jesus, we can make new things, beautiful things, renewed things, things that are a sign and foretaste of the new creation that's coming. Mako Fujimura, who I've quoted in this series before, in his wonderful book, Culture Care, writes this, effective stewardship leads to generative work and a generative culture. We turn wheat into bread and bread into community. We turn grapes into wine and wine into occasions for joyful camaraderie, conviality, conversation, and creativity. We turn minerals into paints and paints into works that lift the heart or stir the spirit. We turn ideas and experiences into imaginative worlds for sheer enjoyment and to expand the scope of our empathy. This is a Christian writer saying that part of our calling is to take the, the raw materials of the earth, create beauty, and then use that beauty to point people to the one who is the source of their human flourishing, their creator who loves them. So what beauty may God be calling you to create as a signpost of the hope of the resurrection? Ann Horner uh, Truitt introduced me to this New York City florist named Lewis Miller. Uh, for years, 
his posh productions and extravagant arrangements were enjoyed only by the fortunate few in New York City. But Lewis dreamed of the idea of lavishing common city spots like trash cans and phone booths and construction zones and subways with beauty. Um, and so what they started doing during the pandemic is they would do these flower flashes where they would take trash cans or subway cars and they would go overnight and do these extraordinary, extraordinary works of floral art in the middle of the city. And they did it for no other reason to fill New York with nature's glory for no other reason than to bring beauty. Uh, and at the height of the pandemic, they became a symbol of hope in New York and even a source of energy for the healthcare workers in the city. Friends, the resurrection is the reaffirmation of the beauty of the world, and it is a promise that one day the ugliness of disease and sin and death will be removed forever. And in a time of tremendous cynicism towards Christians, beauty may be one of the most powerful witnesses that we have to the gospel. People use their senses often before they use their brains, and they can know when something is beautiful even as their brains might tell them it is wrong. I love this quote from Brian Zond. He says, beauty has a way of sneaking past defenses and speaking in unique ways to a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by moral assertions. Beauty has a surprising allure and everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. So what beauty can you create that will point people to the resurrection hope that is ours in Christ? Here's another application that relates to creation care. When it comes to creation care, there's two fallacies that we need to combat. One is a radical environmentalism that sees human beings as the problem um, and as a scourge uh, even to be removed. We reject that. We affirm the human-earth relationship as a God-designed moral and mutual necessity. So we reject that. On the other hand, we also want to reject a dualistic spirituality that sees the earth as worthless. Um, I was just heartbroken when I saw on Twitter a Christian pundit say, the Bible teaches that drilling, mining, stripping, and raping the planet is what God wants us to do. We reject that as an unbiblical lie, and yet admit that Christians have undeniably contributed to the current ecological and climate crisis due to our bad, dualistic theology. It is time to repent, and to repent and recognize the ways that we have resources as resurrection people to be on the front lines of laboring for hope for all creation. So just think about first in your personal life, are there simple ways that you and your family can practice resurrection stewardship? Resurrection stewardship. Um, I've learned from people like, um, I hope you don't mind me saying your names, Lauren Luck, to remove all paper towels from her home. I've learned from Tracy Meadows about how to um, reduce plastic. Um, Kathy White uh, brings an extra set of utensils everywhere in her purse. So when she eats out fast food, she's not throwing away stuff. There's um, Mark Sprinkle here, um, somehow even uses the squirrels in his backyard as a food source. Um, <laughs> it's, a lot more, it's a lot more beautiful than that, though, actually. So yeah, there are these simple things, recycling, composting, reducing your waste, um, energy-efficient practices, reflecting on how we eat, getting connected to the local agriculture community. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to do this stuff, obviously. This is good common grace stuff. But if you know Jesus, rather than doing these things out of guilt or shame or fear or legalism, you're just free to do them out of one who has been reconciled to God through Christ and therefore have a restored identity as God's steward, anticipating the day that all things will be made new. Um, I buy eggs that come from cage-free chickens, not just because I think they taste better and that I, I like them, but because I believe a new earth is coming in which chickens will no longer be crammed into tiny cages 
And they, chickens themselves, will be liberated from their bondage to decay. Can't you wait to eat a new creation chicken? (laughs) I want to celebrate now a foretaste of what we know is coming. So what practices can you engage in now that demonstrate that you are a resurrection steward of God's new creation world? Look at your work life. One of my favorite laws in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 25.4. You should memorize it. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. My ox, my ox loves that verse. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Here's the context. While um, the harvest sheaves were laid out on the ground, an animal, an ox in a harness would uh, walk around dragging this heavy sledge with a stone that would sever the grain from the stalk. The ox was basically a tool for grain production. And sometimes in order to maximize profits, farmers would muzzle the ox so the ox would not be able to eat the grain while it was treading it because you could lose a good percent of production from what the ox ate. So to maximize economic gain, sometimes farmers would muzzle the ox, basically mistreat it and drive it hard. So God is basically saying to his people in the Deuteronomic law, don't do that. Share your grain with the animal that's providing it. Don't ever put maximizing profit ahead of caring for my good creation. Don't ever pursue greedy expansion of production at the expense of my good world. Whew, that feels very relevant, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, Are there ways that you have influence in your office and industry in which you can advocate for better practices and care for God's good world? Food practices, waste management policies, energy efficiency, ways you can build more faithful stewardship principles that may indeed involve sacrifice or even loss of profit, but ultimately are obedient to God and his call to resurrection stewardship. Kids, students, I would love for some of you to think about this as a future vocation. We need more architects and urban planners engineers, scientists, and farmers who love Jesus and who love creation and who can help solve problems that make our world more in line with God's intentions. Be like my dear friends Jack and Goody in North Carolina. Jack and Goody are resurrection farmers, I call them. Um, Jack said to me that he wants to practice a vision of life that treats each creature, human and non-human, as an expression of God's love. He said this, our common destiny is in Christ who is making all things new. So we heed the call to till and keep the garden of the earth, to use it, love it, and maintain it. Sarah and I buy all of our meat from the animals that they raise. Let me just close with this from an evangelical declaration on the care of creation. Because we await the time when even the groaning creation will be restored to wholeness We commit ourselves to work vigorously, protect and heal that creation for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. So let me sum up. Jesus' resurrection is a promise for a new creation. When Jesus rose from the dead, not only does he affirm the goodness of God's creation, he secures its eternal destiny forever. Already now, even in the old world marked by sin, Jesus invites us to claim our role as stewards and to bear witness to the beauty that Jesus is now creating, pointing like signposts to the new world that is coming. Let me just close with a final word on hope. Uh, Years ago, Sarah and I lived um, in an apartment building, and our next-door neighbor was a single mom and a teenage son. And um, I got to know the teenage son. Um, I think I I connected with him just because he was... uh, He reminded me of myself when I was a teenager. He was often um, very depressed and, and hopeless. And so one day I was trying to share about Jesus with him, and I was sharing about the hope of Jesus to him. 
And he, as I began to share, he just dismissed me very quickly. He said, yeah, 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 I know all that. Jesus died on a cross so I can go to heaven when I die. What does that have to do with anything? He said, what does that have to do with anything? And you know, sometimes we make the gospel so small. It's about flying away to heaven when you die that for kids like him, it really does seem like it has to do with nothing. But we have a better story, a true story. At the center of our story is the cross, and the cross culminates in a resurrection. Ours is a story that begins and ends with wholeness, that begins with a good creation, and ends with a new creation. And if the resurrection is the heart of our story, it means the gospel has to do with everything. Our souls do matter, and so do our bodies. Our prayers and worship matter, and so does our work. Our relationships matter. Our labor matters. Our parenting matters. Our impact in the world matters. Our creation matters. Everything matters because Jesus has risen to redeem all things. And now our greatest calling is to bear witness to the renewal that Jesus has already begun. I'll just close with this wonderful quote that I began the series with eight weeks ago from Tish, Harris, and Warren. If Jesus defeated death one morning in Jerusalem, then suddenly every revitalization, every new birth, every repaired relationship, every ascent from despair, every joy after grief, every recovery from addiction, every coral reef regeneration, every achievement of justice, every rediscovery of beauty, every miracle, every found hope becomes a sign of what Jesus did in history and of a promised future where all things will be made new. So that's really my hope for us, third family, is that we would be an unstoppable people of resurrection hope, that you would have hope for yourself personally, you are raised with Christ, you are new in him, you have power to change, to become like Jesus, you have undescribable resources for your own suffering because the end for you has already been written and it is a hope of resurrection. You have hope and you are now called to be one who brings hope to the world, that we have a better story, that the end because of Jesus, is always life. So can we commit to be that kind of people in a world of cynicism and despair, anxiety, and fear? Can we be prophetic witnesses to resurrection hope? Let's pray that we can be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the expansive, eternal, cosmic hope of the resurrection that truly because you are risen from the dead, you have, you have flipped the switch and that all things are being and one day will be made new. Help us to be resurrection people in the way that we care for your world, in the way that we steward our bodies, and the way that we bear witness to hope. We pray all these things in and through Jesus.